just received. In terms of the covenant theology understanding of how God is in the business of establishing the people of Israel and what makes them separate, unique, and distinct from their surrounding nations, that message is, uh, is vital to understand as also it applies to the gospel that we who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ must go on to displaying our faith through works, but understanding clearly that those works do not merit or earn any sort of justification in their own. What I mean when I say we must go on to do good works is it's a necessary consequence of having been justified by faith that this will happen. It's it's uh, it's not at all a this must happen or else you must you will not be a Christian any longer. It is if you truly are believing in Jesus Christ, being recreated as a new creation in His image, uh, a grace that God alone can do. You cannot earn that. Then you go on to being filled with His Spirit to walk in His ways and according to His precepts. That is the the heart of the old covenant prayer and cry over and over again from different kings uh, and wisdom writers and psalmists is incline my heart to your ways, align my steps according to your precepts. That is the message over and over again of the righteous in the old covenant. They're longing for the realization of a new covenant reality by the spirit they can walk in newness of life. That is, they were longing over and over again to be ones who would be filled with the Spirit in order to walk in the ways of God. And so we're going to look at this um, it today, at, and at one point we're actually going to look at what is called a, a confession. Uh, many of you have interacted with a catechism. Uh, a catechism and a confession are somewhat similar. Catechisms are structured teachings that disciples who are coming to the Lord or children who are, who are growing up in Christian families hear, and they're structured in a question and answer call and response pattern so that these, these uh, people who are being discipled can learn what the Christian faith teaches. Likewise, a confession, although it's not structured in a call and response, it's just structured as a set of declarations about what we believe as Christians, a confession does great good in helping us to solidify potential issues in our hearts uh, concerning the nature of the gospel and how we are to walk as new creatures in Christ. So today, I want to look at, uh, in this context of our, our talks in Exodus, though not an official series, this is very, uh, it's very amorphous, it's emergent, if you will. This is an emergent series on Exodus. Uh, we're not the emergent church, but we do have emergent series. We're, we're going through Exodus, and my heart's desire is that we would see the law given through Moses as containing requirements that Christians still need to follow in this sense, that the ceremonial laws have been completely satisfied through the atoning work of Christ, and that God's moral law, as it's shown throughout all of the scriptures, still applies. There is a, there is a heretical movement throughout much of Christianity called antinomianism. And what it means is, it's a perversion of Paul's teachings on grace, and what they maintain is that because Jesus Christ has wiped out our sins, there are no more 
sins that we can commit. And that is a deep and tragic heresy. Antinomianism also is the outworking of a heart that is bent on licentiousness, that is uh, licensed to sin or, or taking the grace of God in vain and just using that as an excuse to continue in sinful habits, whether they be, uh, you know, timidity or commissions, the things you actually do, an unwillingness to mature. Uh, these are things which you must put to death by faith through the Spirit of God. They're not okay for you to leave in your life. You should actively make war on them. And so the antinomians who maintain that there is no sin for a believer, uh, they miss the point of the new covenant. And that's why I say, if you did not hear the Sunday school hour teaching from today, I highly, highly recommend you get a CD, take a listen to it. It is vital to understand the point of the new covenant, which is what we're looking at today. It is the, it is the point of the new covenant that God would have a redeemed people who could actually live righteously with him. Not that the righteousness is of their own doing, but that they would be able to walk according to the ways of their God, and it wouldn't be a God in name only. He would actually be their God. That's what we sang when, when we were talking about how the Lord is yearning for and searching for. His, it says, the prophets say that his eyes wander back and forth through the earth, looking for a heart that's completely devoted to him. And it's only in the new covenant by grace that we can have our hearts changed into the sorts of people who could actually love the Lord. So, um, in these passages in Exodus 20 and Romans 6, we're going to look at the before and after of the, the uh, work of grace that Christ has done on the cross for us to see the laws of God set in a context of covenant in this story of the Exodus. And then we're also going to look at what the gospel has to say about the redemption of that. So we're going to look again at the establishing of Israel. God is in the business in our in our loose structure of of the book of Exodus. We're touching on different chapters, and if you remember well, uh, God has just pulled it, Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He already gave them a land charter years and years ago through Abraham uh, to for this particular piece of land, and now He's beginning to form a nation. He's beginning to form a people. We're going to look at how that law in itself contains a prototype by which the rest of the law is expanded. We're going to look at the nature of our transgressions against these laws as being evidence of functional heart idolatry. Idolatry in the scriptures begins with the idea of uh, bowing down at a particular idol or a shrine or something that has been made by a human uh, and fashioned into the likeness of some animal or some uh, feature of creation, uh, usually a beast or, or even a man or, or maybe a, a celestial body. And people prostrate themselves, they, they bow down before them, and, and they worship at these idols. What does the Lord have to say about that? And, and the message is clear, as we see in Romans 6, that we, as Christians, bow down to these idols. And so the, the, the law of Moses, though it has been satisfied, its demands have been satisfied by Jesus Christ, and by that he has pulled us out from under being trapped in bondage, unable to do the law for ourselves. He now allows us to, by grace, see where we are still bowing down to idols. 
and his law reveals that to our hearts. We're going to look at the redemption that God accomplishes through his son Jesus to bring us out of that terrible uh, condition by which we were subject to the law and not able to perform it. And then finally, we're going to look at what Paul has to say about what has happened because we've been saved by faith. The gospel and presenting the gospel is insufficient if you only mention justification by faith. That is, God gives you this free gift and that's it. And that, unfortunately, is where many of us stop in coming to the Lord. We hear this wonderful free offer, and then we either go one of two ways. We never progress in maturity to actually loving the Lord, to being those sorts of people who he's called us to be, or we revert to, as the book of Galatians warns, a system of law-keeping by which we hope to be justified. Again, today, I'm not saying that you get justified by faith and then prove it. Or, uh, or earn it after the fact. You are justified by faith, and then it is demonstrated, not earned. Not it's not uh, it's not like a buying a house. You don't get the deed to the house and then pay for it later. You you get you get the house and it's yours. And likewise, you you maintain, you upkeep, you uh, solidify and remodel over time, not to earn the house, but to demonstrate that it has been inhabited by someone who the Lord has made into a new creation. So we're going to look at these elements today. Um, in the creation, God is demonstrating that he is sovereign over all of the earth and also all of the cosmos or the, the idea of all of the universe. God is, is demonstrating his power, his authority, his ability to move mountains, uh, so to speak, the book of Job's, Job talks about the Lord establishing the boundaries of the, the earth, establishing the foundations of the deep. And so God in, in uh, the days of creation is forming and partitioning. He's, he's moving things around. And in doing this, he takes the land and he separates it from the waters. And he establishes a boundary. Here is water, here is land. Then he, he moves after that day to, an, at another point, he moves to creating a garden in a special place in the midst of Eden, and Eden is in the midst of a land. And so there are, there are boundaries, there are partitions. And then after that, God creates his, his people, uh, Adam and Eve, his image bearers, and he deposits them into that garden in a particular place. God did not just put Adam and Eve anywhere on the earth. He put them in a specific place, which was to be a template by which Adam and Eve would bring the kingdom of God to earth. Genesis is seen as a mirror of heaven. It's, it's God's pattern, which is being demonstrated on the earth. And so in the creation, we see these elements. There is land. There are people in the land that is a special land. That land itself is bears fruit. It's a garden. And that land also is being ruled over by God's vice regents, his people. How are they to rule? God gives them his word. He gives them his law. And the law is a very simple law. It is do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is the only law that they have to obey. And through that law, uh, they are, must come to realize all of the implications of that law. Part of this command that God gives them obviously would entail uh, a command to watch over their hearts so that they would not be enticed by anyone or anything to eat of that tree. 
the implicit in the one rule are many implications. And so Adam and Eve are to rule over the garden, to extend its boundaries, and to create a paradise over all the earth. And so God has established through the creation a people, a land, a particular land that gives off good fruit, and also a law by which they are to live in that land. He has made a covenant with Adam and Eve. As God has acted in in the creation story, so also he acts in all of the covenant stories. God is again doing this partitioning work. He's taking Israel out of Egypt, right? Just like God took the land and the waters and put them apart, so also he has ripped Israel out of Egypt and brought her to a place of uh, uh, preparation in the wilderness. And that's where we pick up in this story. Because God is doing this new work in the earth, he's doing it absolutely because of his own covenant faithfulness and his own mercy and love, not at all with respect to who Israel was. Over and over again, God tells Israel, I did not choose you because of anything that made you special. You were the least significant of all the nations. And so so God is doing this work of his own mercy and grace, and he's, he's putting Israel in a place of grace giftedness and of blessing of a land which is going to bear fruit for them but they cannot be a people who have a god unless they also have a law and it's at this point where he establishes the law in exodus 6 7 the beginning of describing to israel the the nature of this covenant he says i will take you to be my people and i will be your god and you shall know that i am the lord your god who has brought you out from under the burdens of the egyptians god's working in this similar fashion yahweh's ripped israel out and is establishing them in a land and he's installed Moses, just like he installed Adam, to be a vice regent or a mediator or a representative of his desires, how to demonstrate, how to organize, how to set up the nation of Israel. Now, after rescuing God, uh, them from Israel, God gives the law of Moses as the charter to the people of Israel. If you remember from maybe uh, a history class, maybe that would, I don't know if this would be given to you at a public school, um, but in our, in our private schools, they stressed over and over again, the colonists, when they arrived at the United States, coming over in their boats, uh, the Mayflower, uh, you know, think of the Mayflower flower that you get at the store, the Mayflower pilgrims, they come over and they land in a particular land and they've been given that charter by a king and that charter establishes the boundaries and the rules by which they can have a civilization or a city. And so this, this law that God gives, the law of Moses, is the charter for the people of Israel. Whereas the promised land describes the where, the law of Moses describes the how, and in some sense, the why. And, and we see that in God's covenant. Israel is to be a people who live with a law established not by a vote, nor by a decree of, from man, but by God alone. And in this, we see that God is like a king. Yahweh is established as Israel's king, if you read narratively. He has rescued them. He saved them from their enemies. He's fed them. Earlier in in Exodus, we didn't get to this, but God has given them already manna from heaven. And then he begins to form a, a people group and give them a law. And he's also bringing them into the land. So he's not only promised and uh, a land, he's also delivering them into that land. He's, it's, this is going somewhere. This law is not just, I am God, you are man, and you have to obey my rules because I say so. 
This is not arbitrary law decree. This is not tyranny. This is a God who is intimately connected to his people, and he's establishing how they should live. And so, in the midst of this law that he gives, at the very beginning, we see a prototype of the rest of the law. The, the foundational idea by which all of the other laws are enumerated. And so, in this, we hear that in Exodus 22, uh, or Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is not an arbitrary law passed down from some bureaucrat. This is a law that is given by God. It's divinely connected, and it's relationally connected. It, this is not, I am God, deistic creator of the world who set it all in motion like a top and I'm observing from the outside. No, this is a law by which God is saying, I was the one who rescued you out of Egypt. He's not just God Almighty far away. He's their God. They're possessive, that is in a personal possessive or a collective possessive understanding of God. They, it, this isn't just some arbitrary God. This is their God. And it's not a, a an abstract relationship, it's a concrete one. Israel, it's, it's important to understand this, Israel did not wrestle herself free from Egypt. She did not overthrow the Egyptians and therefore establish her freedom. She was delivered by God Almighty. And so, and so she owes fealty, devotion, adoration to Yahweh. That is her, that's her duty. The first commandment, likewise, is the prototype, just like this initial prologue, for the rest of the law. Exodus 20, uh, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And this is where we begin to see the nature of transgressing God's law as being a revelation that we are functionally being idolaters. We assert a God above Yahweh when we sin. God's command is absolutely clear. He alone is God. He is alone is worthy of obedience, fealty, that is uh, extreme devotion with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, uh, everything that you own, everything that you are, is to be dedicated and used for the service of the God that, that you, you love and the God that has saved you. And so that, this is why uh, I, I almost never sing two new songs in one week, but I really felt it it important to get those ideas across through song. He is the Lord forevermore, and he reigns over his people, and, and that we need to be wholly devoted to him. It is not enough that we hear God's voice, we hear God's message of grace, and then say, oh, that's cool, that's a neat idea, you know, it's not very, uh, it doesn't really gel with the, the rest of society, but I'll be a Christian on the side, and, and that'll be neat, and that'll be a compartment of my life. No, we are to be wholly devoted to the Lord. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly devoted, devoted to the Lord, completely. And so, in the midst of giving the law, God, through the prologue, saying who he is, and through the prototype, the initial first law, demonstrates the nature of all the other laws. Understanding the first commandment rightly, we see that to disobey Yahweh's command is to obey the voice of another. That is to assert another's command above Yahweh's command or, or God Almighty's command. Isn't this how our first parents sinned? Adam and Eve had one rule, and that rule was to not eat from a particular tree. Now, I don't know about you, but 
understanding uh, my heart as a child, there would be no way that I would have obeyed that law. I ripped into every cookie, every secret cabinet where there might be something delicious, and I ate them all. And in fact, the book of Proverbs says that bread eaten in secret is, is good bread. Now that's talking about adultery, and it's horrible. Um, but this is the one rule, and what did they do in transgressing that rule. They took God's command, which his voice had uttered to them directly. It was, it was not mediated by anyone. God spoke directly to Adam and Eve and gave them this one rule. And yet they allow the voice of the serpent to usurp the voice of God. This is nothing more, nothing less rather than idolatry. Exodus 20 verse 4 God, in, in giving this law, begins to highlight the nature and expand upon the idea, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water un, under the earth. He makes it really clear. All three compartments of my creation, don't make anything like them. Don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. For in it, you profane yourselves and you transgress my commandments. And so, God is saying nothing in the sky, nothing on the earth, nothing under the earth. Uh, it's all off limits for you to make an idol for, uh, from. God commands Israel not to worship any of the so-called gods. Not, notice they are not gods, uh, but rather uh, they, are, they are demons. These are demons uh, in league with Satan who wish to demonstrate their usurpation of God's authority in these now wicked men who came after Adam, and they, they lead them away into idolatry. These are doctrines of demons. These are absolutely terrible things uh, to, to follow after and to bow down and to serve. They're not gods at all, but they are deaf, dumb, and blind. Exodus 20, verse 12. Let's examine some of these in the light of that idea that each one of the laws that God has given, in, and in fact, the very nature of the law of God, breaking it or transgressing it is idolatry in a functional way. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God sovereignly established your father and your mother as an absolute authority under him and over you. Your father and mother have been sovereignly born before you in time, and by, uh, by God's establishing a covenant with, uh, over them, the, the marriage covenant, you come through that covenant and you are brought into the earth. You're brought into uh, being. And God is, it, it's, we understand that, that sex, uh, which leads to children, is not just uh, reproduction in an industrial idea term, but it is procreation. It is participating again with God in bringing humanity into the earth. And so this is not done in some abstract way. We're not just machines who make other machines. It's not like we have baby factories in our wives. That's not the image of, of humanity. The image of humanity is partnering with God to multiply and to spread throughout the earth and to fulfill it. And in God's sovereign plan, you have been brought into this world under authorities. And so God is saying that the authority that I've established in your father and your mother, if you transgress that authority, you are really coming against me. And you're saying your authority is higher than Yahweh's authority. 
you shall not murder. Isn't it God alone who gave the life of, or gave the gift of life to men? And you come against that desire for God to, to allow man to grow throughout the earth. And you say that your will be done. I want to take this person's life. It, God gave this gift and you seek to take it. How arrogant that is. Your rage and anger take the seat of God uh, and usurp or out, you know, throw out God's mercy and justice. Paul says that husbands should live with their, li- their wives in an understanding manner because they are both heirs of the grace of life, the grace of life. Life is a gift. And so in murdering your brother or your sister, you are coming against God's grace that's been dispensed to them. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. It's God alone who establishes a particular uh, marriage, not just the idea of marriage, as so many people want to think about today in the whole uh, LGBT homosexuality uh, definite, you know, hijacking of the idea of marriage. It is God who established marriage as an idea, as a pattern by which uh, ma- mankind would uh, propagate throughout the earth, and also it is God alone who solidifies and creates that marriage, that mysterious thing that happens where male and female, two flesh become one flesh. Only God alone can do that. And in that, he is saying, do not break this covenant that I've established. Breaking that covenant by committing adultery is saying, God has either given me the wrong wife or the wrong husband, or that other marriage that I'm not party to, uh, I'm going to steal the fruit that is in that marriage, and I'm going to go after what God has alone given to these two people. And so that is, you know, again, asserting your desire, your lust, your, your insatiable greed over and against the gift of God that he's dispensed to that particular marriage, that, that cu- couple. Many people who are in today's politically correct culture, they hear uh, the Ten Commandments and they think, my goodness, uh, the Lord is certainly a anti-woman, uh, uh, you know, hater. Uh, he, and, and the Law of Moses contains uh, anti-feminist uh, ideas. I, I ha- hate to break it to you, but the Lord is not about uh, subjecting women the Lord is, is all about making them flourish, uh, allowing them to exist in a, in a condition of life, whether married or unmarried, by which they would be uh, actualized people. And in this commandment, where by which God tells you not to covet your neighbor's wife, then also listing other things that are under your neighbor's responsibility— uh, the the feminists take this as they hijack it from its original meaning and say that God is saying women are the proper, property of their husbands. Nothing could be further than the truth. You, man, are given headship in your marriage. It is your responsibility to protect and to, like a wonderfully placed garden, remove the weeds, trim back, prune, fertilize, uh, establish your your wife as a wonderful focal point in your life. And by God telling you not to covet your neighbor's wife, he's not saying your neighbor's wife is your neighbor's property. And then listing other things that are responsible, uh, that are under the responsibility of your neighbor. He's not just kind of summing this all up as here's all the stuff that belong to men, as if you could sell a person, like you could sell a ox or a donkey. 
God says not to covet, and yet you, by your greed and covetousness, demonstrate that you are not satisfied with the station in life that God has given you. Just as Adam and Eve rebelled against God's law, so do all the Israelites. It's a terrible, terrible direction that the story goes in for a time, but there's a great redemption. And so in this, Israel turns to the other gods and betrays Yahweh. They incur guilt and break the covenant. And every single individual in the old covenant scriptures, we see time and again, every single individual, every king, every nation turns from Yahweh and goes astray. The human heart, according to John Calvin, is a factory of idols. Every one of us from his mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. Is not the transgression of the law merely indicating the establishing of an idol in your heart? When we surely, uh, when we survey even this small sampling, we didn't even cover all of them, who could honestly say that you are blameless? We're all guilty of these sins, and beyond this, the, the sins that we do commit, demonstrate the secret and hidden bowing of our hearts to these demons, whether they are of pleasing ourselves or of pleasing Satan and his kingdom. All mankind's transgressed, so what's left, God absolutely must act. There is no one else who can remedy this situation. The Son of God, therefore, pledged to redeem the people of God by accomplishing the law, whereas we could not, and by taking our punishment, which all of us justly deserve, and none of us could bear. This is the remedy by which God has established. Though he gave a good law to establish Israel as a people, they were not able to do it, and so they incurred great judgment and wrath, and God himself has come to fix the problem. The prophecy that God gives to Ezekiel concerning the new covenant shows that God has not only given us a clean slate through Jesus Christ, but by his grace, he has made us into a new creation. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, a, uh, sorry, remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The last half of verse 37 is virtually non-existent in most preaching of the gospel. You are redeemed in order that the spirit of God might take up residence within you so that you could walk according to God's ways. Not that you could be justified by doing them, but that you could walk according to them. That is why so many young believers struggle over and over again with sins that they, that they commit. They know they should not be doing them, and yet they feel powerless because they don't understand that connected to that same idea of God showing you his love by sending his son to the cross, he also is sending his spirit into your life so that you could walk according to his ways. Both and are connected. You don't earn your salvation. You don't earn your sanctification. You begin to walk in it. God the Father has chosen these people to be his own. Therefore, God the Son has redeemed them from their trespasses. And God the Spirit applies this redemption. He is the one who creates this new creation. It's not a It's not a new uh, model. It's not a new... Uh, chair. It's not a new woodwork. It's a new creation and no one other than God creates. And so God, the spirit applies this redemption, making us new creations and enables us to obey God from the heart, not from an external law that is written on tablets of stone, but from a law that God himself writes upon our hearts. And so the moral law is very much in effect, 
The moral law cannot be completed in your flesh. It can only be done by the grace of God. Yet it is necessary for you to begin to walk according to that end goal of Christ's work. Uh, as, As Christians, we are to actively war against sin. It is not enough for you to believe the truth of the gospel and then say, well, I guess I'll just mature when God gets around to maturing me. You are to, by the grace of God, begin to apply the truths of the gospel, the commands of Christ, the commands that are clearly written in all of the scriptures concerning the moral law of God, not the ceremonial law that he gave to Israel for the temple sacrifices and and cultural exclusions, but rather the moral law by which you come to walk as one who is a true human made after the image of Christ. And so you are to take up the power of the Spirit, being taught by the Word of God, and go after it. Romans 6, 12 through 14, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Paul is saying because of what's happened earlier in this earlier in his writings, he says, therefore, or let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Because you've already been redeemed by from sin, you are to put to death the sin that remains in your heart and in your life. Do not present, verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. What was the, what was the uh, message that God, the warning that God gave to Cain? Before Cain slayed his brother Abel, God is saying sin is a croucher. It's, it's crouching at the door. It's, it's running around in uh, counter-strike doing the duck thing all the time. And it is at the door and it's breaking into your house. And he tells Cain, you must master it. The same command is to you, Christian. You must master the sin by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. You must master it. It is not enough for you to positionally believe in the resurrection of Jesus and therefore by faith the redemption of, or the application of that resurrection to you without beginning to walk in it afterwards. Not walking in it indicates that you are not truly believing. I'm not saying that you must be perfect. I'm saying that you must actively war. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So many people take this verse out of context. You are not under law in the sense that he explains in the previous chapters, which he says we were unable to do the law, having already transgressed it before we even received it, and we were kept under. Think of it like a glass ceiling, if you will. All of God's people who were given the law by the time they received it, had already transgressed the law and had become corrupted. And through the corruption of their natures, they were unable to do any good work in their own. And through the sin of Adam, we see that even if they weren't already corrupted, they would not have succeeded. They would not have done the law. And so Paul is saying that Christ came and and smashed through that barrier and pulled you out from under the inability to do the law. And so at this point, you are not under law. That doesn't mean that God's moral law does not exist. If God's moral law did not exist, it, so such as the people who say, we're not under law, brother, we're under grace, then what would sin be? You can't deny that sin exists, surely, but what would sin be if it wouldn't be the transgression of something that God demonstrates that he doesn't want or doesn't desire? So, 
the law is very much still in effect in this sense that there is a moral law by which we know what God wishes for us to do and knows what he does not wish for us to do. And so in some sense, it is still in force. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus came to satisfy the law's demands and to open up a way that we could begin to walk in newness of life according to God's precepts. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a shirt that has cotton and linen and, and flax. That's not, what, that's not what I'm saying. The ceremonial laws, the temporary cultural exclusions, which kept Israel separate from the rest of the nations, those have been removed. That's clearly taught through the the doctrines that are found in the book of Acts, whereby which God comes and tears down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles and extends grace and redemption to those who were not inside Israel before he arrived on the scene. So I'm not saying that you have to go around and slay goats and heifers and all of that. If you still believe that, go read Hebrews. God has, through Jesus Christ, completely satisfied once for all the requirement of the atonement. But... He still has a way by which we should live, and that is his law. Because of what Christ has done, we're not to let sin reign in our our bodies. It doesn't say that we are not to let sin reign so that we might be acceptable to Christ. It says, because you have already heard and been declared peace and favor from God, and, and having heard that, beginning to trust in it, beginning to follow it, you're showing that you have been redeemed by God. And so, therefore, because God's already done this part, and he's taking you to this end destination of one day being resurrected by the power of Jesus Christ at the end of the age, to be a a true new human living with God for all eternity, because that's the end goal, Paul says, therefore, don't let sin reign. If you know that you are going to heaven, going to be resurrected, going to live on the earth with your maker for all eternity in a perfect state of bliss, joy, charity, love, if that's the end goal in your life, and God is the one who declares that to you, then don't let sin reign now. Why put it off? This is an inaugurated or a, a uh, coming at you now uh, sort of eschatology. And so in this system, Paul says, don't let it rain. Notice the language that he uses in these, in these verses. Present your members. You are instruments for righteousness. Uh, these, these types of language are the language of service. They are the language of bowing down to something. Paul says that even after becoming Christians, if we still sin, we bow down and serve idols. You are not just serving some abstract uh, sin nature kind of idea. You are being enticed after your own lusts, after your own desires. You're serving an idol of self or an idol of Satan. Romans six fifteen through 16. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Notice the either or. Many things in the Christian life are both and, but serving God or serving idols is a clear either or. You are either a servant of unrighteousness and therefore bowing down, having already been redeemed by Christ, you're then continuing to bow down to idols. You've been, you've been 
snatched from death by Yahweh himself, and yet you still turn again and you serve an idol. He says you are either a slave to disobedience or sin, which leads to death, or you are a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. That is justified living, not positional righteousness being redeemed before God. Paul is not saying that you earn your perfect standing with the Lord. He says, because you have been given a perfectly clean slate, you can now begin to live as a true human. Because we've been redeemed by Christ, we can change our behavior. Notice I say can. I don't say must, although it's a necessary consequence. It's not a necessary condition. It's not necessary that you get your life in order before you come to Christ. In fact, you can't. But it is necessary in the sense that it is an, it's an inevitability. It will come to pass. Romans 6, 20 through 22, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You are called to be fruitful and multiply, and that means to bear fruit in your righteousness. That means to, by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, by the grace of God, take a hold of the sins which are still in your life and put them to death. And, and to quit bowing down to them. The greatest advice I ever received in battling a particular sin of lust, although I believe this applies to all sins, is the meditation of the nature of that sin. That's why I'm presenting this material today. You bow down to an idol when you sin. That idol is either yourself or doctrines of demons or other people establishing other humans as an idol. Uh, family olatry is a thing. Uh, church olatry is a thing. That happens. And you uh, fall into idolatry from time to time. What I'm, what I'm saying is that by the grace of God, you don't have to bow down to idols. You can walk before the Lord with an uprightness of heart. So, in this terrible condition that we find ourselves in of bowing down to idols, what is the remedy? The remedy is nothing other than the realization of the nature of lusts. It says concerning sexual immorality, we are to flee youthful lusts. And that is true. You are to flee from sinning. But in one sense, I think it is often helpful to meditate on the nature of your sin, not on the object of your sin. I'm turn your eyes away, brother, as fast as you can, but don't meditate on the object of your sinful desire, but meditate on the nature. See what it truly is, and in that moment, cry out for grace from God to turn from that idol. Because of the grace of God working in our hearts, we can be certain that he is pleased with us. This idea is synthesized in the Belgic Confession of Faith, which is lengthy, and it's where we're going to end, but I want to read it because it is succinct and it helps you understand the order. It is vital to understand the order. If you are seeking after God and attempting to justify yourself before him by doing his law, by being a good Christian, if that's how you're seeking to come to God, you are far from him. But if you, by grace, through faith, accept the gift of God, 
then you are near to him, you are dear to him, you are being demonstrated as one who he's, he's making after his own image. You cannot approach God in your own, but after he brings you out of Egypt, so to speak, then you can go to the promised land. I want to read this. Um, it, it is a little heavy, and I'll try to uh, give a proper enunciation and cadence so that you understand the sense well. This is a Dutch confession of faith that uh, is part of the Reformed tradition, which most of us are close to, Um, although I don't think any of us are capital R Reformed. I'm not wearing any stoles, and and you've never recited a confession. Um, But this is an accurate and I think very helpful thing for new believers to understand the true nature of the gospel. Getting it out of order will lead to disastrous frustration and despair. Getting it right will lead to joy. The Belgic Confession, this is Article 24, so this is way back into the confession. There's, there's a lot of other stuff. This isn't, this isn't the full creed that the Belgic uh, Confession teaches. This is just one article that's like on the, you know, 13th page or something, but it's helpful. We believe that this true faith produced in man by the hearing of God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit regenerates him and makes him a new man, causing him to live the new life and freeing him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, far from making people cold towards living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith, quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and a fear of being condemned. Without following the true faith, you can never do anything except out of fear from God, unrighteous fear of God, and the fear of being condemned. Not doing it for the love of God. So then, is it, it is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what the scripture calls faith working through love, which God leads a man to do by himself the works that God has commanded in his word. Therefore, these works, proceeding from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable to God. It is the struggle of many a young believer in the Lord, a young believer not age-wise, but in terms of maturity, to understand how could I be acceptable to God if my life is marked by all of this sin? Well, in one real sense, you have been declared righteous before God. And that declaration of righteousness through the working of the Spirit, as this confession is explaining, is beginning to take a hold of your life. It's unfortunate that Polaroid is, is kind of gone from our culture. Some of you who are older remember Polaroid cameras, where you take the picture, and then after the, the picture comes out of the little thing, uh, you wave it around in the air. You don't touch it because you'll mess up the, the setting of the image, but the image begins to slowly appear. That is what the sanctification is like in a Christian's life. You, th- that snapshot where you are made a new creation, the image is set, and it is being progressively revealed. Someone should buy a Polaroid because those are going, those are honestly going the way of the, the buffalo. Although, although, although buffalo are back in wild numbers, we've got to get a new metaphor. Continuing on, continuing on, yet they do not count toward our justification for by faith in Christ, we are justified even before we do good works. Otherwise they could not be good any more than the fruit of a tree could be good if the tree is not good in the first place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty work. 
We ask you, Lord, that you would give to us a true faith that is not dead. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from the idea of justification by works. Lord, we ask that you would demonstrate to us, that you give us confidence that you really are at work in our hearts. Lord, we also ask that you would give to us a mighty grace this week and all the weeks of our lives that we would, when tempted, instead of just avoiding and hoping that we won't be touched by sin, that we would meditate on the nature of the idolatry behind the sin which we are tempted to commit. Lord, I ask that you would give to us a mighty grace that with David we would cry out, incline our hearts to your law. Lord, I ask that you would give to us a spirit of prayer and supplication this week, that we would make earnest appeal in the midst of our temptations, that you would help us in our families to not, uh, to not exalt them above you. And Lord, most of all, to not exalt ourselves before you. Lord, that we would not put our desires uh, and our wants in, in, in objection to yours. Lord, that we would not exalt our, our needs before you or, or the place that you are to have in our hearts. God, I, I ask that this week you would give us a great ability to see through the schemes of the enemy, that we would see the idolatry behind the deceit, the, the deceit that we would see the nature of our transgression and that out of love for you, which you have given us, that we would by faith put to death those things which would tempt us away from serving you. Lord, we ask that you would give to us an understanding that our worship, our service of you is not one that we do just on Sunday mornings when we sing some songs and partake of your body and blood, but Lord, that our worship is a continual yielding of our heart before your throne through the grace that you give us. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name, amen.